as we are traveling through the book of 1 Kings. We're in chapter 7. And if you remember from last week, we read into that first verse. It starts with but, so back up one verse. Seven years to build the temple. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. So what? So why is that? Well, I don't know. Maybe the supplies for his house were not already acquired. Maybe there wasn't a real sense of urgency to get it done. Or maybe it was just more elaborate and big. His house appears to have multiple areas in it. Most scholars believe the building's were started simultaneously. The temple and his house were both started at the same time. And the temple was finished in seven years and his house was finished in 13 years. Whether or not that's true or not, I have no idea. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon in addition to the temple. I think this is the name of his house. Certainly, it's probably called the house of the forest of Lebanon because of all the wood that has come from Lebanon that was used to build this massive house. So I believe this is the description of his house. And when we get down, I'll show you why I believe it's absolutely true. But check the, out the size of this. Its length was 100, 100 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. And its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. Of course, they put the pillars in there to pick up the span of the next, probably the floor. And so, like I said, most believe this is a description of his house. So the house of Lebanon here in verse 2 is 150 feet by 75 feet. It's like, well, yeah, okay, it's workable. By 40 feet, by 45 feet tall. So for perspective, your two-story house, if you have a steep roof, the, the peak is 26 feet. So this is almost double that. Keeping in mind that a lot or most of their buildings were flat, some believe this is a three-story house, which would then give you 33,750 square foot for Solomon's main house. Because then there's the throne room, and then there's, we'll, we'll see as we go. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and it was paneled with cedar that they got from the king of Tyre. Above the beams, huh? Yeah. Above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There are windows with beveled frames in three rows. A windows was opposite window in three tiers, and all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames. And window is opposite window and three tiers. So you get a little bit of the building description. You're not going to get a lot. I'm going to trust you all that you're going to read it tonight just before you go home and go to bed. Solomon also built the hall of pillars in verse 6. I believe that was attached to his main house and the hall for the throne, also known as the hall of judgment in verse 7, where he might judge. I believe that's also attached to the main house. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. So all similar construction materials here. 
All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws, inside and out. That, that would be carbide saws or diamond blade saws, which they had access to diamonds. I don't know if they figured out how to make them cut. From the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside to the great court, the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits, so that's 15 feet long, and some others that are eight cubits, that's 12 feet long stones. And above were costly stones, hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Now, it's interesting that's added here. So needless to say, this is not your basic track home. But look at the last part of verse 12. Solomon's house and the temple had some of the same features in its construction. Interesting, isn't it? Mm, no, not for the man who's going to be rather elaborate. If you skip ahead just for a second and look at 1 Kings 9.10, look what it says. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built two houses. But we don't have to guess at what those two houses are. The house of the Lord and the king's house. It only speaks of two houses. The temple, the Lord's house. And that king's house. So I believe as I look at this description that we just read, it's a description of one home that Solomon had and not multiples. It might have had different wings and different attachments to it. Not that it means anything, but I think uh, that's what's going on here. Now, King Solomon, verse 13, sent and brought Huram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, so Jewish. And his father was a man of Tyre, so Gentile, so a 50-50 mix, half Jew, half Gentile. He was a bronze worker. Actually, he was a bronze master. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all of his work. So Solomon brought in the best of the best. No expenses spared for these buildings in both of his house and his temple. Verses 15 to 46 tell you all that Hiram uh, from Tyre accomplished. You can read about it tonight just before you go to bed. But there are a couple things here in these verses that stand out, at least to me, from a building perspective. Look at verse 21. Then he set up the 27 feet foot tall bronze pillars. I know that because if you back up a couple verses, it says that's how tall they are. 27 foot tall bronze pillars by the vestibule of the temple by the front. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jochen and set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. So there's these two massive pillars set up there at the uh, entrance. And they're set up that way for looks. Most believe they don't hold anything. They were standing on the porch in front of the temple to remind the Israelites of who had brought them and who had brought about the greatness in their lives. They got these two massive pillars. And as long as they remembered and lived by who had brought about the greatness in their lives, he, he would establish them in his, in his strength. As long as they remembered, they would be okay. 
lose sight of that and we know what happened. But these were just in the front. And every time you'd walk in, they spoke of the fact that God had established his people in, in his strength. And they were a group of people who were made strong by the Lord. There were people who were established by God. The names that were on these pillars would testify to that fact as they would walk in, that they'd been established by God in, their, in, in his hand by their by his strength. And it's interesting that they're made out of bronze. We know in the Old Testament that bronze speaks of judgment. And so here you got these two massive 27-foot pillars. Speaking of judgment, that you're going to walk by every time you're walking into the temple. And certainly when they, the people in the pillars, are carried away, yeah, God is judging them. And these two large bronze pillars that you remember, they break them up and they carry them away to Babylon. And yet, it wasn't ever God's plan, but God gave them a promise and said, if you walk with me, life will be good. If you don't, I'm going to sell you out to your, your various idols you want to serve. And that's what happened. Verse 23 is another construction feat. And he made the sea of cast bronze 10 cubits from one brim to the other. So it's 15 feet across. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, which would be this table. This is the circumference. So it's 15 feet across, seven and a half feet tall, and 45 feet if you were to run a tape measure around this outside of this table. Verse 26, it was a handbreadth thick. So according to Haley, that's three inches thick. All the way around was this bronze wash basin. It contained... 2,000 baths. That doesn't mean you can take a bath in it 2,000 times and then change the water. A bath is a unit of measure. According to Haley, it's about nine gallons. So this is your basic 18,000 gallon bathtub that the priests would use to wash in. If you want an idea, go get a uh, one of those above ground pools that measures 45 feet around the outside, stack them on top of one another to get to seven and a half feet because they're probably only three and a half, four feet tall and you're going to get pretty close to how big this thing was. Verse 46 is the location where they did all the building. Check this out. In the plain of Jordan, the king had the, them, all this stuff that we didn't read about, cast in clay molds because a lot of it was just sand, but there must be clay here between Sukkoth and Zaratan. You might want to look on your Bible maps just to find out. That's not exactly next door to Jerusalem. No, it's actually quite a long ways away. So they build these things, and a lot of the things were small, but this bath here, this, this labor thing that they built, this sea of cast bronze, man, it was massive. They must have had some, you know, double wide uh, uh, trailers. And, you know, you see them going down the road, wide load. Well, this was like extra duty wide load. So anyway, that's that's my uh, interesting things here. Verse 47. And all Solomon, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Man, when God blesses, he blesses. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord. Now, to me, that interests me. 
They're going to carry the, the, the priests are going to carry the ark into this new temple. So why not carry all the old furnishings from the old tabernacle, the one that was made when Moses died? I don't know. Some believe that the other tabernacle kept those items and was functioning to some degree. I have no idea if that's true, but it's interesting to me that Solomon will bring the ark, but not the other furnishings. You know, the altar of gold and the table of gold on which was the showbread and the lampstands of pure gold. Th those things were actually in the other tabernacle. Five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place. We know why he made those, because the original tabernacle was a tent, didn't have doors, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. And we know why he made those hinges as well. They were doors and not a tent. But why he made these other things, I don't know. Maybe they're wore out. They, they're, they're old. They're, they're 400 plus years old. But no doubt this place was magnificent. It's beautiful. A lot of gold here. And as long as they walked with the Lord, this temple would stand. And that's what they needed to do. They needed to walk with the Lord. It, it was not rewrite the law, seeking to be self-righteous and offer up sacrifices like the Pharisees and scribes did. They thought if they kept the law, they were righteous. No, they needed to walk with the Lord and obey him. Just like you and I do today. We need to walk with the Lord and obey him. We, we don't rewrite God's code like they did. So all the work that King Solomon, verse 51, had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father had dedicated. And that would be dedicated from all the wars and things that David would fight. And then he would just dedicate those things to the Lord. The silver and the gold and the furnishings, he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. A lot of gold and silver. Some have taken it upon themselves and estimate that there was 75,000 pounds of gold in this temple. I have no idea if that's true. However, if it was true, at today's gold price of $1,231 an ounce, that's 1,477,200,000 of gold that one man dedicated to the work of God. Just saying. That's whatever is true here, God has it all recorded in heaven. So Solomon is bringing all these things that have been made into the temple, items of gold, brass, and silver. And as you look at these building materials tonight, keep in mind that gold is always a metal that speaks symbolically of the heavenly scene. Brass always speaks of the of a metal of judgment. Silver, the metal of redemption. Judas betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver, and in the tabernacle there was silver, silver sockets and so forth. Always a Medal of Redemption. So with the building complete, it's now dedication time. Chapter 8, verse 1. We won't go through this as fast. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant from the city of David, which is in Zion. That's actually one of the shorter sentences. <laughs> some of them are pretty long. 
Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at, at the feast in the month of Ethium, which is the seventh month. Okay, so you go, okay, yeah, big deal. Okay, okay, but hold your spot here and go back to chapter 6, verse 38, just for a minute. It says, in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the what month? Eighth month, the house was finished in all its details according to its plan. So the temple was finished in the eighth month, but here in chapter eight, the feast took place in the seventh. And of course, when there's things like this, there's many guesses as to why that is. Some would say it was the year of Jubilee. Others said, and I think this makes the most sense, it was harvest time. So we don't want to stop the people from harvesting their crops because harvesting crops is like pouring cement. You got to get it done right now. And so... Whatever reason, though, it's now been 11 months since the temple was completed, and now they're going to have their opening ceremonies or their grand opening here. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings. So, again, they, they made them, but is this the new... Holy furnishings, or is this the holy furnishings from the old ark? We saw that he made them. So again, it's, you know, the, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense. Are those the new ones coming from the old tabernacle, or are those the new ones that uh, Solomon just built? They brought them into the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. So it's moving day. Solomon is moving the Ark of the Lord from the tent that his father had erected into the new building that took him seven years to complete. And again, this the, the father might have erected the tent, but it's the tent that Moses had built that they've been wandering around with forever. And then when David pitched in Jerusalem, he brought it. And yet in the midst of all these special occasions, they start offering up sacrifices. And they offer up so many they can't even count them. Look at verse 5 there. Also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with them before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. So that's the start here. So somewhere along the line, they, start, they count them or they offer up all of this because at the very end, they offer up 120,000 sheep and 1,000 oxen. We'll see it when we get there. So I don't know if this was like day one of the sacrifice and they just offered up so many that they couldn't count them. So if they couldn't count them and they numbered 120,000 sheep at the end of this book, a, a chapter, then they must have offered up more than 120,000. And needless to say, there is blood everywhere as this massive barbecue is going on. You know, lamb chops and oxen are on the menu. You know, because God, God got a little bit, and the rest was given to the priests and the people. So no doubt about it, man, they are eating good here for the next 14 days. If you've read ahead, you know that's it's a 14-day deal. It's seven days, and they add on another seven days. Why? My guess, because they had so much meat, and they needed to eat it. <laughs> then the priests, no doubt carrying on poles, brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles 
The, the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. So you got the holy place, you got the holy of holies, and so that way they wouldn't have to go in there and see it. I guess they would just cover it from outside somehow. And they are there to this day, at least at the time of this writing. Of course, people say they're, this means they're actually somewhere. No, I think when this was wrote that he was writing that these are still there. As you'd enter the Holy of Holies, directly in front of you against the back wall would be the cherubim that were carved out of gold, and their wings would touch one another, but also the outer wings would touch the outer walls. And so the wingspan of each one was 15 feet. So this room, this, this Holy of Holies, was a 30-foot cube. Then the Ark of the Covenant is to be set in front of that, as it is right below these cherubim. And that's the place of the meeting of God where the high priest would go in once a year. And so this is the and also this is the model of the heavenly things. If you think back to where we've just traveled in the book of Revelation, the cherubim are representing the cherubim there about the throne of God in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10. But also in Revelation chapter 4, we see these cherubim. Verse 9, nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, what's interesting about that? Yeah, what, what happened to that? What, what's, what happened to the jar of manna and the rod that budded? Well, that jar of manna was that reminder of God miraculously providing for them as they walked through the wilderness. He preserved them for those 40 years of wandering and you know, the rod of Aaron was when Moses and Aaron was challenged. Hey, we, we're cool enough. We're big enough. We can lead. And God said, tell them all to bring in their rods from each tribe. And Aaron's rod budded, so they put it in there. But all that's in here right now are two tablets of stone. Hold your question. I'll get it at the end. But all that's in here now are two tablets of stone in which God inscribed the law. So what happened to the other two items? Most believe when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, they probably ripped off the golden jar that had the manna in it. Nobody can know for sure, though. However, the men of Beth Shemesh could tell us for sure, because as the Philistines uh, released the Ark of the Covenant, because remember, they're getting all those tumors and stuff. As the Ark came and landed in, in the city of Beth Shemesh, the men of Beth Shemesh looked inside it, so they could have told us if it was missing. The problem is God struck them dead. So <laughs> they're not going to be able to tell us as the ark came back from the land of the Philistines and stopped there in Bethshemesh. They could have told us because they saw it. And it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of God. When man was removed from the pitcher, God's glory flooded in. It's still that way today. Once man's out of the way, God's glory gets to flood in. The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you. And now, I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but there's a lot of eyes in here for Solomon. He, he, makes, he, he gives credit to where credit's due because it's David's temple. But there's a lot of eyes in here. And I don't know if eyes become his downfall. Somewhere from where he starts 
to where he finishes, we all know there's a major downfall. So I don't know if the eyes, we've built you an exalted house would work here very easily. But he says, I surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. It's a good word from Solomon. But the promise from God to Solomon was if he didn't forsake the ways of the Lord, God wouldn't forsake him and be with him forever. And Solomon says, in a place for you to dwell in forever. Of course, he's going to get all that in here before we get done. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David, because this is David's temple, and with, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, that's their history here, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. So I like this look, that Solomon recognizes that this is his father's temple. And I also like the look that where God says to David, you did well that it was in your heart. We, we know God looks at our hearts and we know that God knows the desires of our heart. And so for me and for you, this is a good look here that if I desire it in my heart and it doesn't even come to pass that the Lord sees and says, hey, it's, it's a good thing that it was in your heart, Bruce. So that, I like the way this is worded here. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I, could have been we, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple in the name of the Lord God of Israel, and there I have made a place for the ark, and which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So he first addresses the people with the reminder of the faithfulness of God. How God is faithful to keep his promises that he makes with his children, and then Solomon's going to go right into addressing the Lord as the one who's faithful here. Then Solomon stood. Please take notice of that. What's he doing? He's standing. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And he spread out his hands towards heaven. So a common posture of prayer in the Old Testament. You see it all over the place. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And that's just as true today as it was back then. That God keeps all of his promises to those who walk before him with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep with... Keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And you're going, Really? Yeah, because that's how God sees it. David didn't go sell himself out to other idols. If you follow the king's history, starting with Saul, 
There's those who sell themselves out to other idols, and there's those who don't. All of them make mistakes along the journey. But the big deal is those who sell themselves out to other gods. David never did that. And he uh, walked before the Lord, even though he wasn't perfect. So Solomon knows what to pray here, because he obviously has been reading his Old Testament scrolls, because a lot of this is God's charge that he gave to Moses, that if the people walk with me, I'll be faithful to them, but if they don't, and we're going to see that all the way down here, that Solomon knows what God had promised him if he will but walk in the ways of the Lord. Even as you and I, we know what awaits us as we walk with Jesus. It's, we, we know that because the word of God tells us that. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple which we have built. Oh, no, sorry which I have built. So many people have this very narrow concept of God. A concept, I think, that's so small that they try and, well, they think they can control God or they try to manipulate this their little image of God. And yet Solomon says here that the heavens of heaven cannot contain him. Remember when the children of Israel were fighting against their enemies and they defeated their enemies in the battle in the valley? Their enemies would say, well, their God is probably a God of the valleys. Let's fight them next time up in the hills. And then they'd fight them next time up in the hills, and Israel would defeat them. And then those that were defeated would find out not only was their God the God of the hills, but he was also the God of the valleys. And But people often thought of God as, well, as something they could control or a local God or something that allowed them to do what they wanted to do because it didn't really, didn't really matter because it's just, well, that's, he's just a small God. Remember when Jonah got on the boat? He thought he could run away to Tarshish and flee from the presence of the Lord. But we can't. David tells us, you might want to turn there and look, Psalm 139. David tells us where God dwells. Just so you have a, picture of how big your God is when you're praying. Psalm 139. O Lord, you've searched to me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend in the heaven, you are there. If, my make, if I make my bed in hell, not that he would, but he just used it. He's in the context here. God's everywhere. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You need to know that the God that you serve is not a local God, but one that's with you 24-7, 365 days of the week. And that's what Solomon is saying here at the, at the end here. He says, behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple. He understands that God is not going to dwell in this temple. Verse 28. Yet regard the prayer of your servant. 
and his supplication, O Lord, my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward the temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. Now, again, this is this. If you go back into the uh, in, into the five books of the law of Moses, you're going to find wording like this. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And if you go to Daniel or Nehemiah, they quote parts of this: "Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor, is forced to take an oath." and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple. And we see the whole oath-taking uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And when they take this oath, then hear in heaven and act, and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. <clears throat> when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. And no doubt they turn back to their God often in their history. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, and that's a big deal because the crops in Israel were not irrigated, but they needed the early and latter rains to produce uh, crops or produce fruit. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, so you don't think you're going to sin against them right now, Solomon? So it says, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. See, shouldn't it say um, we? When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because we have sinned against you? That's like, gosh, I wonder if I'm going to. You know that song that they sing down south? It's, uh, I, I, I know, and if my flesh will fail. No, it's when my flesh will fail. But when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them, us, the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And certainly this is their history as well. When there is famine on the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locust or grasshoppers, that's not little kung fu people, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, see that? When each one knows the plague of his own heart. Of course, the devil lies to us at that point and says, God is done with you. But God is merciful and ears are open, just like Solomon's praying here. When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards his temple, it's a posture of prayer, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Do you believe this? I hope you do. If you believe this, that God alone knows the hearts of all men, then ultimately you get a rest in the fact and not worry about anything 
because God has everything in his hands. And again, Solomon knows his first five books of our Bible as he quotes them often in this prayer. Obviously, he had spent some time reading the squirrels that he had. Verse 40, For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner or a Gentile, who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards his temple here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you. Long sentences, right? As you do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Okay, so so that's the way God has always intended Israel to be. Was to be the ones who were welcoming all nations, to teach them, all nations, about the worship of the one true God. That is the way God set it up. That's the way it was supposed to be. It just got turned sideways because man got involved. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, now this would be your people where you send them when they pray, because Solomon never goes out to battle. God told him he's going to give him rest from his enemies. So this would be valid for Solomon to put they instead of us. And when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, the wisest man on the earth knew all were sinners. So those that call sin something other than today are not wise, but you can fill in the blank what they are. Solomon says, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far and near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication of you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you towards the land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I, or we, have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. And you thought I had long run on sentences. <laughs> but this is what God's looking for today from the Jews, that they would cry out to him for protection and for deliverance. That's, that, was all, that was the offer on the table. God will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. If you follow me and seek me, life will be good. If you get turned sideways and you come back and call out to me, I'll welcome you. 
they would do this. You know, Daniel obviously knew the scriptures and understood like Solomon here in his latter years. We read in chapter 9, verse 3, in Daniel's prayer here. Let me read it to you. And I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord God, great and awesome, God who keeps his covenant at mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Listen to this. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Now, the thing about Daniel is we don't read ever read anything, Daniel ever doing anything wrong. We have committed, but it, Nehemiah is the same thing. We. This is every, all, I think all, all this stuff that goes on, it's on us, the church. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We've done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We've done wickedly, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray. Let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. So Daniel's praying that at the end of the captivity, he's starting to realize, hey, the, the, the time's almost up. So Daniel knew God's word and he realizes they're coming to the end. Of this captivity, they remember they owed the Lord for not keeping the Sabbath, and he and he remembered these things that they had said back in in um, the Law of Moses, and and then Solomon prays these same things some three hundred years earlier before Daniel does. If the people who are in captivity would turn back to this place and pray, God would answer them, and He does, because He brought them back into the land from Babylon. Verse 53, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord our God. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his hands with his hands spread up to heaven. What's changed? What about his knees? Yeah, so somewhere his posture along the line has changed. Remember, he was standing with his hands spread out when he started his prayer, but he finishes here kneeling with his hands spread out. Then he stood, and I don't know what to make of that, other than if we started seeing a bunch of wheeze now, I could kind of figure that out, but it's just an observation. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. And I hope we all know that as well. That not one word from God, from what God has spoken will fail to come to pass for us. You know, here we are 3,000 years later, and Solomon spoke this. God's still faithful to his word. You know, look over this prayer of Solomon and see if God has not, over the last 3,000 years, been faithful to those who have kept his word. He has been. And he's brought calamity on those who have not kept his word. So not one word has failed him. 
So that's why we get arrested in these things. May the Lord our God be with us, verse 57, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is good or that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. You know, these people saw the glory of the Lord descending in the temple. That should cause us all to act and walk a certain way. And it does for a while for these people. You know, one of the greatest needs I think that we have today is that need of a consciousness of the presence of God like these experienced. I mean, certainly if you saw the glory of God descend upon the temple, that I, I would think that would affect us somehow. And so if we're conscious of that, I, I would think there'd be a greater incentive of walking in a holy, righteous way than anything else, being conscious of our relationship with God. And that's why our relationship with Jesus is so important. You know, here they seem to, well, they've seen it. They've all seen it. There seems to be this really extreme consciousness of, of God. Kind of like that song we sing, every step I take, I take in you, you are my way, Jesus. Every breath I take, I breathe in you. Every move I make, I make in you, you are my way, Jesus. There's this consciousness of the presence of God in our lives. It's critical to walking with the Lord. Without the consciousness or the presence of God in our lives, you and I are going to do whatever we want to do. And we're not even going to take any second thought about it. Somehow think we're all okay. But we need to be in the presence of the Lord. It's critical. Verse 62, Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And these are numbered, and so I don't know if they're... Oh yeah, I missed the thousand bulls by a little bit. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls. I got the lambs right, or the sheep right. 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Want to take a guess at how much meat it is? If you get 500 pounds of take-home meat on the bull, they would say around 450, but I figured back then everything's got to be better than it was now. So if you got 500 pounds of take-home meat on a bull and 40 pounds, they say you get 33 to 34 pounds on a sheep. So let's round it up to 40. If you get 500 pounds of take-home meat on a bull and 440 pounds per sheep, that's 11 million pounds for the bulls, 4,800 for the sheep. So that's 15,800 pounds, 800,000, 15,800,000 pounds of meat. And that's conservatively probably. If you or if you want to round things down, make it 15 million pounds of meat. That's a lot of meat. Barbecue. That's not the cow's weight. No, that would be like 30 ton or, or, or 30, uh, 30 million. So that's actual eating meat. That's not the guts. None of that stuff. On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, 
and the fat of peace offerings. He had, to, he had to do it in the middle of the court because here's why. The bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small. Yeah, to receive the 15,800,000 pounds of meat. No, all of that was eventually barbecued. I don't think all of that was offered to the Lord, just portions of it. And then, you know, they cooked the rest of it. Uh, and the fat, uh, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. So, so they, most of those feast days are seven days. This one's 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. So why is it this long? I don't know, because they had so much meat to eat, would be my first guess. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all that, for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people, and their bellies were extremely full. Now, I like that David is not forgotten. Hard for Solomon to take credit for the temple, because he was just the builder. Typically, even today, the architect takes all the credit, not the builder. Sad to say, the architects mark things wrong and do things wrong, and a lot of it they don't even detail out, but they get the credit. Well, David's heart of building the temple makes him the heart of building the temple. Kind of makes him the architect. Solomon was just the builder, so life is good for Israel. Life is good for Solomon. The people of Israel are leaving. Their worship experience, rejoicing. Times are good. And certainly that's how we want to leave the church every time we leave Jesus because we, he's met with us. Times are good. But, and then next week, if you read ahead, God will appear to him again. And then Solomon's life becomes interesting. Father, we're thankful, God, for all that you want to do in our lives.